Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. I don't always wear a red t-shirt on stage, but when I do, I make sure it has an alpaca on it. It's a rule of life, rule number 72. It says alpaca box is what it says on it, so make sure you grab a box and you pack it and you bring it back at some time in the future. Thank you guys for leading that, Teresa Christoph especially, for, for planning and helping lead out Christmas in July. All right, church, you got your Bible? I hope you do. We're getting close to the end of our Summer in Psalms series, Songs from Zion, and we have looked at a lot of different themes throughout the summer. We've looked at the theme a lot of trusting God, trusting God in dire days or tough circumstances when it seems a little scary to trust, to still trust. We've looked at the theme of God surrounding us and realizing that we're not alone. We've been reminded not to be people who worship out of habit or just only out of habit but with no heart because we'll find ourselves to be spiritually empty on the inside even though we're doing the practices if we're not truly engaging the Lord with our heart. Today, we're gonna look at the theme of confession and repentance. Happy Sunday. Glad you came here today, yes? I, 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 early in the week, thought about coming up and saying this would be like somebody telling you that you need to eat your vegetables, right? You, you'd rather have a cheeseburger, I would, you can save your cheeseburger for later, but the vegetables are full of nutrients. They're full of the good stuff that keeps you healthy. You need it. It's vital for you. Yeah, so vitamins are for us, Randy. Double cheeseburger for you. <laughs> but I was thinking about it more throughout the week, and I became increasingly convinced that confession and repentance are really more like the meat and potatoes. They are the, the center of our plate. They are the main course when it comes to the Christian life. If you think about that, I think about prayer and Bible study and singing. That's the stuff that we talk about a lot, we focus on a lot. I like to talk about a lot, but those things to me now, I think of them more like at Thanksgiving dinner, it's the mac and cheese and the green bean casserole and the chocolate chip pecan pie. Like it's the stuff that I love and it makes the meal delicious and complete, but the main course really is, in the Christian life, confession and repentance. And if you look at the Bible, you read through the Bible, you find that is the theme all throughout the Bible. It is the main, it's the heart, it's the center of the New Testament's teaching. Think about John the Baptist who came before Jesus as the forerunner to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And he would go out and the message he would give people is, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from walking in your way and turn. Don't miss Jesus coming. And then Jesus would come, and when he began his public ministry, his first message is a message of repentance. And then at Pentecost, the message that the Holy Spirit used to launch the church out into the world was the message that first declares the work of Jesus Christ, and then in response, doesn't say, now that you've heard about Jesus, everybody huddle up in a group and sing. No, it, it says everybody confess and repent, turn to Jesus Christ. It really is the center. It's the main course of our life with Christ. But if you look around today, that, that isn't the way that I think we've looked at it or the way that we experience it in our Western, modern Christianity. And it may be because in some way we've really desired that our friends, our neighbors would come to know Jesus like we know him. They'd, we'd know his love. They would know his grace. They would know his forgiveness. And so we, in some ways, have undersold or we've just ignored the biblical mandate of confession 
and repentance. But what we've missed is that they really can't experience the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the joy and the peace without coming to a place where they practice and experience confession and repentance. That's where the grace is found. I was listening this week to R.C. Sproul teaching about repentance, and he made the point that we, we think about faith and about repentance as these two concepts. And it does make sense. They're two different words, and they carry some unique ideas about them. But the problem is when we look at faith and repentance, as we try to distance them, we end up divorcing them from one another. And what Sproul said is that uh, in the Bible, these two ideas, faith and repentance, are so inseparably related that true faith always involves repentance and true repentance always involves faith, that they really are like the heads and the tails. It's like a two-sided coin of Christianity. And you've heard, you know, the Bible says faith without works is what? It's dead, right? Well, I tell you, faith without repentance is just kind of a a feel-good spirituality. And repentance without faith is just self-help. You get that? Does that make sense? And I think somewhere along the way, maybe what we did is we, we believed repentance was vital. It was necessary. We believed when we first came to Christ, we needed to repent from life apart from Christ and turn to Him. And then it's just, you know, easy going for the rest of our days. Or maybe we thought at some point along the way in life, I kind of diverged from the path. I was prone to wonder, and then I needed to repent and come back to the way of Jesus. But we did it, and then we moved it to the side of the plate, and we feasted on other things. Well, think about Martin Luther, you know, the man who kicked off the Reformation by nailing 95 points on the door of the church to the Catholic church to let them know where the Lord is moving him to critique and better understand what a biblical Christianity looked like. Number one of 95, Luther said, all of the Christian life is repentance, all of it. Turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners aren't merely a one-time inaugural experience, but it's the daily substance of Christianity. The gospel is for every day and every moment, so repentance is to be the Christian's continual, continual posture. All of the Christian life is repentance, which seems to be pretty accurate when you read the Bible. It seems to be the greater summary of the greater New Testament's teaching and encouragement to the Christian and how to live our lives. And if that's true, and if we can come to a place where we go, yeah, I kind of, I can kind of see that theme as constant run in running throughout the Bible, and it's just in every book of the New Testament, then we probably, all of us probably need a deeper understanding, a greater understanding of what repentance is and what it looks like in our daily lives and how we can make it a continual practice and actually experience in it real joy, real freedom, and real peace in Christ. And so uh, this morning, Psalm 51 will be a help for us. So grab your Bible and turn to 2 Samuel 12. Yes, I said 2 Samuel 12. We'll get to Psalm 51, but when I opened Psalm 51 and I read the little header, the introduction at the top, it said that this is a psalm of David uh, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So there's a context of the psalm that points us immediately to 2 Samuel chapter 12. That's where we'll start today. The context of our psalm is David's affair, his sin with Bathsheba and his plot and his actions to do away with with her husband Uriah. It's about David 
being caught in that sin and how he responds in the moment when the sin is put in front of him. And now 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. This happens almost a year after David's sin with Bathsheba, and we know that because the end of chapter 11 says that the child was born. And back in Bible days, it took around nine-ish months for a baby to grow and be born. And I learned that in seminary, and so I could teach it to you today. So about a year has passed. I'm so smart. Say it again. What is that? He said I was so smart. For the record, somebody write it in your notes. Here's what happens about a year later. That's important to keep in your mind for a moment. About a year after sins were committed, Nathan the prophet comes to David and basically says, I heard something, David. I heard something recently and you need to hear about it. Can we get coffee? And David says, yeah, come on by. And at this point, all of this time has passed, nine plus months have passed, and David doesn't believe anyone really knows about his sin except for Bathsheba and maybe a few accomplices who helped make things happen administratively along the way. But as far as David is concerned, his sin is hidden and no one really knows. And then Nathan shows up for coffee. Verse 1, Nathan says, this is a story I heard. There are two men in one city and one was rich and the other was poor. Well, the rich man, he had great many of flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and he nourished and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like, it was like a daughter to him. It was like a member of the family. Well, in verse 4, the rich guy who has herds and herds of sheep, he had some people coming in town to hang out and he wanted to throw them a party, throw them a feast. And so he needs to cook a lamb dinner. So he goes to the poor guy's family, the one with the one little lamb, and he takes it to prepare this one for the feast because he can, because he's powerful, and because no one can stop him. So he takes the one lamb, brings it home, slaughters it, cooks it, and serves it to his guests. David hears this story. Nathan says, I heard this thing. You need to hear about this. David hears this story. Verse 5, his anger burned greatly against the man And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who's done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no compassion. And I don't know how long Nathan paused, but he looked David square in the eyes and piercingly looked beyond his eyes into his soul and he said, you are the man. Now, You can only pull this like one time as a pastor. (laughs) Next time Nathan shows up and tells an elaborate story and says, you are the man I'm talking about, David's done. He's like, David's not home. No meetings with me anymore, Nathan. I could pull up and tell you guys a story and say, I was really talking about you. I could do it once, but if I did it twice, you'd quit coming. You go, this guy's always messing with us. But Nathan does it. He, he, He looks at him and says, The whole thing is about you and your hidden sin. Listen, please. Everybody sins. Period. But it's what you do when you're confronted with your sin that makes all the difference between life and death. Do you hear me? Every one of us sins, but what we do when facing our sin makes all of the difference. And what happens next is what makes David a man after God's own heart. Um, You know, when we get caught in our sin, there's usually one of four typical responses that we have. I've done them all. You've done them all. 
One thing we do when we're facing our sin is we hide, right? We, we pretend it didn't happen. We deny it happened. We hide from other people, but we even try to pack it down and hide it from ourselves and forget that the thing happened. We hide from our sin. Uh, you know, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to admit it. Let's just put it away. Another time when we are confronted with our sin, we might not hide, but we might rationalize. We might say, you know, it wasn't that bad of a sin, and it was just one time, and I've seen people who do that thing all of the time, and so, my goodness, I'm not that bad of a person. It was just one thing, and we're not going to deal with it anymore. We'll move on with our life. I've done that. You've done that. Other times, we're confronted with our sin. What do we do? We shift blame for our sin. Someone else made me do it. It wasn't my fault. Something happened in my past that has caused me to act the way I act now. It's their fault someone made me do it. Think about this. This is how we respond all of the time when we face our sin, when we're confronted with our sin. This is what happened. Think about this in the Garden of Eden. This is what happened with Adam and Eve. They hit all three of these, didn't they? They were hiding in shame because of their sin, thinking they could hide from the Lord, right? They rationalized. That's how they got there in the first place. They said, you know what? We ought to be able to be the Lord of our own lives. We ought to be able to see everything that God sees in the way that he sees it and have the power that he has. And why should we need to submit to him? We can be the lords of ourselves. That makes perfectly good sense. And then when the Lord comes and faces them with their sin, what did they do? They shifted blame. Adam said, well, Eve made me do it. And Eve said, well, the devil made me do it. And they were all right, but they hid, they rationalized, but they didn't own. They shifted blame, but they didn't accept. They didn't acknowledge. They were complicit. They sinned. They were the ones who took the action. They were the ones who made the decision. This is the way that we respond all the time when we face our sin. We don't want to think about it. We want to make excuses for it, and we want to blame other people. But it's the three things that David refused to do. David took door number four. What's behind door number four? You can confess and you can repent. And this is the path that David takes when Nathan says, you are the man. Look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, yeah, I'm the man. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan turns to David. He says, the Lord also has taken away your sin and you shall not die. Remember what David said when he heard about the man and the story with the sheep? He said, this man's got to die fourfold. We're going to get him. And we see the grace and we see the loving kindness and the mercy of the Lord. Nathan says, the Lord's taken away your sin. You won't die. Turn to Psalm 51. I want you to look at Psalm 51. And as you do, I want us to look for a deeper understanding of what real repentance is is and what it looks like in our daily lives. If you look up the word repentance, a literal definition of it says sincere regret or remorse. Another definition of the word literally says to change one's mind. And both of those things are right, but they are deeper. They involve something. What does it look like? Well, there's three things that change in repentance. Our mind changes, our heart changes, and our will changes, or in other words, we begin to see and view our sin differently. The way we think about our sin is differently. We begin to feel differently about our sin and real repentance. And ultimately, our behavior, what we do changes in the heart 
of real repentance. So three things, the way we see and think about our sin, the way we feel about our sin, and the way we behave ultimately changes. Let's start with the first one, how we see or think about our sin. Repentance begins when we acknowledge sin as sin. Listen to that. Repentance begins when we're willing and able to acknowledge sin as sin. No hiding, no no blame shifting, no rationalizing. Here's David, verse 3 of Psalm 51. He goes, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what's evil in your sight. God, you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Verse 6, behold, you desire truth in my innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Until now, for nine plus months, David has been rationalizing his sin to himself. Maybe he was saying to himself, you know, I'm king. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I get to do what I want, right? I'm, I'm special because I am the king. I do as I please. So, so what if this happened once? I'm the king. We do things like that, right? Maybe David was saying to himself, you know, it happened and I know it was wrong, but, but I did it one time. And I look at all these other kings of all these other nations, and they're evil, they're immoral, they're disgusting. And me, in comparison, I'm, I'm not all that bad. And for nine plus months, he's selling himself, himself these messages. But when he's confronted with his sin, he won't sell himself on another message any longer. He says, God, I know I've sinned. I see it now against you and you only have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. I did wrong Because he sees now as God sees. He views his sin as God views his sin. He won't take his own voice. He won't take the culture's voice, the world's voice for standards of righteousness and rightness. But he'll see as God sees. And he knows, not only have I offended you, Lord, and dishonored you, but I've hurt myself. Life is being stolen from me in the hidden, scary place of my sin. And it's affected others. Others have long-term effects because of my sin. One man lost his life over it. That's the first and the vital part of, of repentance. It's that we have to see as God sees Not as we see or want to see in some idealized way. Not as our friend sees. Not as the world says. But we have to begin to look at sin and see it in the way that God sees it in our life and in our heart. And and notice this, that David, when he does this, he doesn't just stop with looking at Bathsheba and Uriah in his story and isolate that moment and say, okay, well, you know, this one thing, I kind of messed up. He looks at the landscape of his sinful condition. Verse 3, I know my transgressions, my sin, it's everywhere. God, when I try to look with your eyes, I'm not just going, oh, well, you know, here's this little thing, we'll put it aside. I see sin everywhere in my life. My sin is ever before me. And he gets there because he refuses to just look and see what can I get away with or what's the, the, the least amount of, of effort I can put into this. But when he looks at his sin and he replays what he's done in his mind, he takes a deeper look at the motivational sin behind the behavioral sin. And if you're like me, probably you could sit down and in a quiet moment very quickly begin to write a laundry list of sins. And if you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, you would find sins of omission and sins of commission. And you could make a list of them all. 
but it does take a longer look and a deeper look to begin to understand the motivational sins behind the behavioral sins. And what I mean is that all of our action, whether it's good or bad action, is really a manifestation of whatever has our hearts. You get that? However I behave, whatever I do, whatever I choose, whatever path I take is a manifestation of what I love, what I desire, what I adore, ultimately what I worship. And so here we look at David and we find that before he committed physical adultery, he was already committing spiritual adultery. He had already given his heart and his desire to other things. He already was seeking to be satisfied and defined by other things and not by the Lord. It takes a greater stillness. Soulful quiet. It it takes a deeper listening to the Holy Spirit to help me to know why I have moved in in ways that just look and remain falling short of the glory of God, ways that are unrighteous, living in sin. And in my experience, until I can face the motivational sin beneath the behavioral sin, I can't ever really experience freedom from sin and experience true repentance. It's just passing time to the next time I get caught in my sin. It's just passing time. I never get down to what really is going on. Why do I go there? Why, why is it that I return to this sin? What triggers the sinful behavior in me? Not just where are my words and where is my mind and where are my hands, but where is my heart in all of this? And I want us to remember that David wasn't just remembering one action of sin. He was mindfully acknowledging the conditions of his sin, that he's a a human being at war with the sinful condition of his soul. Tim Keller wrote about this. Keller said, you can't be in denial about your capacity to sin. This is good advice. Listen to this. Sin is always crouching at your door. This is scary. You are capable of much more than you want to admit. So the first thing you must do is get out of denial. Right? Real repentance begins where hiding, rationalizing, and blame shifting ends. You follow me on that? Real repentance begins where hiding, rationalizing, and blame shifting ends. Ends, and that involves a change of the mind, of the intellect, that we submit what I think and what culture thinks. We, we turn aside from that and we embrace what does God think about this? And we say that's what really is true. That's what really matters. And that's where repentance starts. It's the beginning, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end in a, a mental and intellectual uh, agreement with sin. It continues into our emotions. It evolves our emotions. Repentance comes as we feel sorrow for our sin. Repentance comes as we feel sorrow for our sin. I want you to memorize a phrase this morning. Here's the phrase, godly grief and sorrow. You hear me? Godly grief and sorrow. Say it with me, ready? Godly grief and sorrow. I want you to remember this phrase because it it shows us A kind of grief that isn't about beating us down and making us feel defeated and leaving us there. Godly grief and sorrow and grace and love doesn't beat us down and leave us there. It comes and it raises us up and it lifts us out of our lowest places. The Heidelberg Catechism gives a good definition for godly grief and sorrow. It it says godly grief is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. 
That's godly grief and sorrow. Godly grief and sorrow is what the prodigal son experienced in that story. The prodigal son rejected the father, rejected the love, rejected the protection and the provision of his dad. He wanted to go live life on his own. He squandered his life. He found himself in pain, in misery, in a dirty pigsty, right? Grief and sorrow is to say, my life stinks now. What a mess I've made. Godly grief and sorrow says, I've sinned. I've sinned against my father, the one who loved me most and who gave me everything, and it doesn't stay in the pigsty, but it gets up and it returns home to the welcomed and warm and loving embrace of the father. That's godly grief and sorrow. Paul, the apostle Paul wrote of godly grief and sorrow. He wrote 1 Corinthians to this church and said, I'm going to call you out and call you up from your sin. In 2 Corinthians, he writes back to them and says, it was effective. In 2 Corinthians 7, he says, I rejoice Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a what? Godly grief, right? So that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. Do you see the difference? Worldly grief and sorrow produces death. It leads you nowhere. It just makes you feel bad. Godly grief and sorrow helps you to recognize sin as sin and return to the Father who gives grace, mercy, and love. Psalm 51, David writes this. Be gracious to me, O God. Be kind to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do you know how you can tell that David is experiencing godly grief and sorrow and not just shame? Do you know the difference here? Because David doesn't cry out against his punishment. He cries out against his sin. Does that make sense? Because David, when caught in his sin and feeling shame, doesn't say, but don't make it hurt so bad. Please let me still be the king. Don't make that happen. Don't put this out in front of other people, God. I don't want other people to know. He doesn't cry out against his punishment. He cries out against his own sin. He says, God, blot out my transgressions. I can't stand it. It's been killing me for nine plus months. I've been dying day after day. So wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me, God. His heart is so broken over his sin. He says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. And this is something only the Holy Spirit can produce in our lives. You can't manufacture it. You can't fake this kind of stuff. And some of you, you hear that, you go, well, yeah, because I've tried to fake it. And you say, Kevin, I don't feel intense sorrow for my sin. Like, I know it's wrong. I've been there. I know this was wrong behavior, but I don't feel sick about it. I don't feel disgusted about it. Well, well, what then? What does that mean? I want you to remember that the New Testament teaches us over and over again that there is a war going on in every Christian. There is a war between the flesh and the spirit existing in the life of every Christian, every waking day of our life until we die or until Jesus returns. The Apostle Paul wrote about it as a confession in Romans 7. He said, y'all, I don't want to sin anymore, but... There's a part of me that still wants to send some, and I hate that about me, and it drives me absolutely crazy, and he goes, wretched man that I am. 
And he says, this is the condition of war going on within my soul. And that's the reason that repentance doesn't stop with just an intellectual assent to go, oh yeah, this was wrong. It doesn't stop there. And that's why it doesn't stop with just feelings, just going, oh, well, I feel bad about it now. But it involves a change of the will, a decided decision, a decided decision, a decision to walk differently, to live differently, because you must, because there's life in Christ's way. Repentance keeps on aligning my behavior with the will and the way of Jesus. Again and again and again, it aligns my behavior with the will and the way of Jesus. And here's the good news. The Bible teaches us that the will and the way of Jesus is called abundant life, not stealing life, not boring life. Not narrow, small life, but abundant life. Like not walking in the way and the will of Jesus is death and narrow life and walking in darkness, but walking in the way and the will of Jesus opens you up to a more beautiful existence, reaching towards the potential of humanity that you cannot experience apart from the will and the way and the grace and the power of Jesus Christ at work in your life. There is an eternal difference between regret and repentance. Do you hear me on this? Regret just feels bad for past sins. Repentance runs away from past sins. I read an article this week about repentance. It, it said most of us are content with regret. We're content with that. We, we just want to feel bad for a while, have a good cry, enjoy the cathartic experience. Think about how dumb I am and, and how I keep messing up all the time. We just want to feel bad for a minute, how sorry I am. We really don't want to change. We don't really want to live differently. We don't want to do the work to live differently. We don't want to let go of the things that we've been holding to onto that we've defined ourselves by, right? Here's David, verse 7. God, purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy. God, make me hear gladness. Let the bones which you've broken rejoice. That's weird, and we'll come back to it. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Instead, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David says, God, I've allowed so many other things to define who I am and what life is about and what pleasure and joy look like. I've, I've placed my identity in these things. I've worshiped these things. And what I realize now is I will never be whole. I will never experience being fully alive until I find my identity in you and my purpose in you and my self's worth in you. So he has all these statements, purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. They're like if-then statements. If you purge me with hyssop, then I will be clean. If you wash me, God, then I will be whiter than snow and it will be such a refreshment and a delight to my soul. The bones that you've broken, may they rejoice. That's so strange to think about. What's he saying? He's saying God has broken the bones and reset them that I wouldn't continue in my limping, but I can start to heal and walk straight and walk rightly and have relief. God, blot out my iniquities. Give me a new heart, a clean heart. Renew me with the right spirit. Abide, 
Lord, abide in me. I want to abide in you. Don't take your spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation that my sin has been stealing every day I've committed sin, right? His entire attitude has changed. His sight, the way he sees his sin, his feelings, the way he feels about that sin, you know, it was a thing, it was bad, it was no big deal. He's sick over it now. And he's decided, I can't live with it any longer. It's got to go. It's got to go. God, you've got to help me. His entire attitude has changed. God, I hate my sin. I realize that it dishonors you. I realize that it's stealing life from me. It's putting me down every day, and it's affecting others. It's not just me. God, take it away. I want you. All I want is you, and I want only what you can give. This is godly grief. This is godly grief and godly sorrow. This is a thing that as Christians, every day of our lives, we should wake up desiring and wanting more and more of. And here's the reason why. When we experience godly grief and sorrow, we exchange that which gives us death for that which gives us life. We experience real repentance. We experience what the psalmist talks about in Psalm 40, verse 2. He says, He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. The the goal of repentance is never to beat us down and put us down and make us feel bad. It's that we would be changed and we could have sure footing and that we would experience life in the open with God. The writer of Proverbs 3 picks up the theme. He says, then you will walk in your way securely and you will put your foot down and you won't stumble. The author of Hebrews picks up the same theme. He says, God will make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame that you've been limping on, that weak thing that you've just learned to live with, but it's been a constant pain and you know it, it will not be put out of joint, but instead you can experience true healing, right? David, when confronted with his sin, he wouldn't hide, he wouldn't rationalize, he wouldn't blame shift, he wouldn't do those things. He chose door number four, he repents. David repents. He sees his own helplessness against temptation. He sees how every time it comes, I'm always weak to it. He knows even if I didn't go back and go back and go back again, I'm so tempted and it's such a battle for me. And every day it's getting easier for me to turn and to consider and to contemplate returning to my sin. So he goes to his only hope. And he says in in verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, please Help me, I need your help. It takes time to pray for cleansing. He goes, God, I can't remain this way. The, the, the mold is taking over, the rot is taking over in my soul. So purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. He doesn't make light of his sin. He takes it deathly seriously. I have sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. You're justified when you speak. You're blameless when you judge me. Like I'm not going to say, oh, you know, it, it's not that bad because people say it's not that bad. God, you need to take it easy. Or church, you need to take it easy. He goes, no, it is bad. And God, you are right. I take it seriously. And David doesn't just desire forgiveness. He doesn't just desire, hey, can we just move on from this? He desires God. He desires renewal. He desires closeness with God. God, don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation that I experienced when I first understood how deeply that you have loved me in Jesus Christ. Then he asks for the heart of God. He says, God, I need transformation. 
God, give me a new heart. Take away this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Create in me a clean heart. And what all this leads to is the rest of Psalm 51, which is really an outworking. It's the fruit of real repentance. It's the zeal that comes with living in Christ when you truly repent. It is the commitment to disciple-making that comes. It's the real joy and the honest worship that springs out of an experience of real true repentance and receiving grace from God. It comes, though, as a painful grace at times, doesn't it? But even though it's a painful grace, it is a grace because it reminds us over and over and over and over and over again that God is forgiving. Remember Nathan saying to David, you're not going to die. God has forgiven your sins, right? He's taken them away from you. That's the promise of the gospel for us, that if we would trust in Jesus Christ, if we would place our life in his hands, his death, his resurrection gives us new life. We are buried with him and raised to walk in the newness of life. That's the promise for us. If only we would turn to him and repent. This is why Luther said all of the Christian life is repentance, right? It's a reminder day after day of the forgiving nature of God and a welcoming an invitation day after day into a more beautiful, more powerful, more peaceful, more joyful life, life in, in Christ. The rest of the psalm does that. What I want to do is stop here for, for the morning. And I want to create some space for us to practice confession and repentance because I don't think confession and repentance is a normal everyday kind of experience for most of us. Maybe you're a person who makes a list in your journal and says, God, here's the 10 things I'm sorry. Here's the 10 things I'm sorry. But we don't spend a ton of time in contemplation seeking to understand the motivational sins beneath the behavioral sins. And I need that. I need that. I've needed it this week, and I would guess you need it too. And I want to take some time this morning for us to sit with the Holy Spirit and to ask his help, to say, in my helplessness, I need you and your loving kindness and mercy. Be gracious to me and help me to understand where I have diverted from the path of righteousness and walked in my, in my own way rather than in, in your way, where I've hid, where I've rationalized, where I'm, I've blame shifted, where I've said, well, you know what, and this is common now, the church has always looked at this as a bad thing, but reality is the church has been wrong because so many out there now are saying, this really isn't that bad of a, a deal. This is actually, we flipped it. So many things that we've considered sin for so long, now we embrace and we celebrate as life. But they only lead to death. Life is only found in Christ. So this morning, I, I've got some candles that you received as you came in, and we're going to bring the lights down and, and give you some time, and we're not going to rush this. I want you to have some time to ask the Holy Spirit's help to reveal to you where that war between the flesh and the spirit is on a losing ground, to ask his help to strengthen you, to ask his help to cleanse you, to ask his help to reform and reshape your heart for his glory and for your good. And you have this candle, and I've got some lighters, and you can see the little lights up here. I want to invite you when you feel ready to come up and light a candle and set it on the table here. Here's why. There's no magic. There's no superpower in lighting a candle. But there are moments I've found in my walk with Christ when I do business with the Lord, I need to do something physical to accompany something that's happening on the inside. And that's why in the Old Testament you find God's people often building altars. They'll do business with God and then they'll pile up some rocks. And it's a physical representation of today, Lord, we've done business. And it creates a memory. 
for you to return to. This morning, I want to invite you to do just that. We'll have some, some piano playing, and we'll sit for a moment, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to guide our time, and whenever you will and are ready, you can bring your candle to this side or this side, and there are lighters there, and you can light a candle and set it down, and you may just say, Lord, I offer up to you my life, and I offer up to you my struggles, and would you, Father, take these issues that you've helped me to see, and would you take them from me? Would you purge me clean? So would you bow your heads, close your eyes. I'll begin a prayer, and then I'm going to leave it with you. God, I pray that you would help us to see as you see. Because as we see in your word, recognizing, confessing, and repenting of sin isn't about beating us down. It's about lifting us up. So would you help our hearts to grow in a desire to be made clean? The fact is, fact, not opinion, we all sin and wrestle with sin. And some of us are, are, are stuck in, in repeating cycles of sin. There are strongholds that have been built up in our life of sin, and we fortified ourselves in our sinful condition. We've said, I'm going to hide this so no one can see it. I'll build a wall here. And we've embraced the idea that it's not that bad, so we put a sign on it that said, I'm not that bad so everyone would know but meanwhile behind the wall it's eating us up on the inside would you help us to see as you see and to feel about our sin the way you feel about our sin so that we might let it go we might release it to you that we might in, in its place receive grace and forgiveness joy and peace and life. And for anyone here who is not a Christian, I pray, Father, this morning that they would see the truth of your love and the depth of your love and the loving kindness that never ends and that you would call them this morning to yourself to let go of whatever they've held on to to define themselves or to, to prove themselves or to hang on to for salvation and they would cling firmly to you and you alone. And in that, would you give them joy and peace? Church, this is your time.